I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. On November 8th, the people of Maryland made history. The Democratic candidate for governor roared to victory with more than 64% of the vote, twice that of his Republican opponent, thus making my guest today the first African-American elected governor of Maryland, only the third in U.S. history. His name, Governor Wes Moore. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on November 30th, before his inauguration on January 18th, Moore and I talked about a lot of things, the state of national politics, his plan for his first 100 days, but most particularly his victory and how that weighs on him. I'm honored and I'm humbled by the fact that I am the the, the first black governor in the history of this state, only the third in this country. But I also know that's not the assignment. And I also know that's not why they voted for me. They didn't vote for me because they wanted me to make history. They voted for me because they wanted me to address the issues that were impacting their lives. So how'd you do it? How'd you win? Why did you win? <laughs> well, I think we won because we went everywhere. Uh, and, you know, and it was interesting because there are people who who would tell us, you know, well, you need to go to this part of the state or to go to that part of the state. You need X percentage of votes out of Baltimore City. Uh, you know, my answer was always simple when they said, who do you need to win? I said, everyone. And that's exactly how we how we not just how we planned on winning. That's how we won. If you look at the vote margin, we won by the largest vote margin that we've seen in Maryland gubernatorial elections in 40 years. We ended up winning not only in Baltimore City and Prince George's County, but we ended up winning in Western Maryland. We ended up winning in the Eastern Shore. We won not just winning with Democrats, but also independents and, and taking a good, a huge swath of Republicans. And so I think we were able to show that this was not just a, a, a campaign philosophy. The, the whole idea of leave no one behind, which I learned when I, was, when I was in the Army, when I was 17 years old and I first joined the Army, we learned this phrase, leave no one behind. And it didn't just become a, a mantra, it became a value statement. And it became not just how we campaigned, but also how we plan on governing as we head to Annapolis in January. So let's talk more about this, the, the, the how you won. And you went everywhere, you talked to everybody, no matter their political affiliation. But I'm just wondering, was your resounding victory, because it was resounding, was it a, a rejection of Donald Trump's candidate, Dan Cox, as much as it was support for you? Well, you know, I, I, I was very deliberate when I was campaigning, where I said, I'm not going to spend my precious time talking to voters in Maryland and asking them to be afraid of something, right? I was gonna spend my time talking to voters and asking them to believe in something, asking them to believe that we actually could create a, an environment where we're gonna focus on economic growth for everybody, that the North Star for our, for our state needs to be pathways for work, wages, and wealth for all Marylanders and not just some, and creating a very detailed plan as to how we plan on getting there. That we said that we're gonna focus on public safety and making sure that all people have a right to feel safe in their own communities, in their own homes and in their own skin. And we're gonna work in partnership with local jurisdictions, work in partnership with the police unions where I, rece I received the endorsement of the police union uh, both in, the, uh, in this campaign because they understood that we're gonna work in partnership to make sure that people have a right to feel safe and children should never have to feel, grow up in fear of the neighborhood that they call home. And making sure that we can focus on economic growth that we as a state are gonna be a place where people, where as a state, we're gonna be both more competitive and more equitable, and that's not a choice. 
We are going to do both. And so I think the thing that we saw around this campaign trail was that, and this resounding, resounding victory, uh, was, uh, was that people did not come out to support us in a two-to-one fashion. They didn't come out to support us because they were afraid of the alternative. They came out to support us because they genuine, genuinely believe that in this moment, Marylanders can move forward together. And as I said on the trail, and I believe in deeply, that if we stand divided as a state, we can't win. But if we stand united as a state, we can't lose. And I think Marylanders saw that. So I want to tick through some of some of the things, key things you mentioned in, in that response. But overall, what's your did you just lay out there those things that were part of your campaign? Are they also part of your specifically of your 100 day plan? Do you have a 100 day plan? Yes, they are. I, I mean, one, one thing I was uh, uh, I was telling people on the campaign trail is you are going to see how we plan on governing by how we campaigned. There's not going to be daylight. You're not gonna see a different person coming on board. And so you're gonna see us moving. When I talk about a sense of partnership, it means working in, in, in partnership with local jurisdictions. It also means just for example, last night, uh, you know, I, was, uh, I had phone calls and conversations with the new minority uh, head of the Senate, a uh, Republican, and the new minority whip in the Senate, a Republican and already starting to create pathways with them as to how we're gonna create legislation that we know that just to get things passed, I could just go to the Democrats. There's a, there's a veto-proof uh, majority that we have in both the House and the Senate on the, on the Democratic side in the Maryland State House. But the reality is, I'm not just worried about do I have enough votes for passage. I wanna make sure that we're building the coalitions so that every single Marylander can benefit from the policies we're pushing forward. But it also means that there are going to be certain things that we are going to prioritize in our first 100 days. And that means things like making Maryland a state of service. And so that's why we are going to push in our first legislative session to ensure that Maryland is going to have a service year option for every single high school graduate. That I, for every high school graduate, will have a chance to have a paid year of service to the state of Maryland. And they can choose however they want to do it. It's because service is not only going to help to address the college affordability crisis, it's not just because I'm a big believer in experiential learning, but it's also because service is sticky. Those who serve together generally stay together. In this time of political divisiveness and vitriol, it is service that will help to save us. And it also means we're going to help to rebuild state government. Right now, we have a massive amounts of vacancies and an atrophy that we have for many state agencies. And so this is about how can we create Maryland and make Maryland a state of service where we can focus on things like everything from our teachers to law enforcement officers, to people in the National Guard, to having making sure that people know that we need people to serve in our state in order for our state to grow and in order for our state to thrive. So your, your mantra during the campaign, because we talked many times during the campaign and in every interview, including this one, you talked about work, wages and wealth. So let's focus in on, focus in on wealth. You made your top priority is to eliminate the racial wealth gap. How are you going to do that in Maryland? And is that part of your yeah. are you going to start doing that in your first 100 days? Absolutely, we are. And it's not just a priority because it's important for a group. It's important for the entire state to understand why having a racial wealth gap in the state of Maryland of eight to one is so dangerous. And we have seen reports just recently, national reports have shown that the racial wealth gap 
has cost this country $16 trillion over the past two decades in GDP. That's not growth for a group. That's not GDP of a demographic. That's GDP. And so we've got to be able to address the issue of the racial wealth gap if we're going to watch long-term economic growth that's going to take place and be sustainable in the rest of the state of Maryland. So to do that, that means things like ensuring that we can focus on unfair appraisal values in historically redlined neighborhoods, because one of the main drivers that we have of wealth in our society is, is appraisal values of neighborhoods, appraisal values of real estate. And if you have such a, such a, a schism between how that racial wealth gap and how that appraisal value works and looks, it has a significant impact on the wealth gap. It means we've got to focus on getting people back to work and making sure they're getting paid a fair wage for the work that they are doing. So that means being able to accelerate how we're thinking about the minimum wage in the state of Maryland, where right now in the state of Maryland, the minimum wage is set to increase to $15 an hour by 2025. We need to accelerate that, particularly knowing now that we have so many people who essentially are the Alice population, the asset constrained, uh, you know, income limited and also but employed. So the people who are working, in some cases working multiple jobs and still living at or below a poverty line. We've got to address that group. And it also means we've got to focus on entrepreneurship, teaching our children through our education system how not just to be employees, but to be employers making sure we're focusing on an ownership society where we're increasing liquidity for our small businesses and specifically for our minority-owned businesses, our women-owned businesses, our veteran-owned businesses. Because if you can increase liquidity to our entrepreneurs, if you can create access to capital to our entrepreneurs, and that means supporting things like our black-owned banks and our MDIs and minority deposit institutions, our CDFIs, we're gonna do a much better job of creating level, levels and measurements of economic growth, which leads to long-term wealth. And so these are all things that we've got to focus on. And if we can do that, if we can decrease the racial wealth gap, increase economic activity, make our state more competitive while also making it more equitable, this is going to be Maryland's decade because we are going to focus on economics. So now let's focus on crime. Um, how do you plan to address crime, particularly in Baltimore, which has become, unfortunately, a national, a national symbol of, of crime in the country. And, and, and this issue is personal. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a very proud Baltimorean, uh, and I'm someone who has seen the impacts of this from a uh, up close and personal. Uh, you know, I, I think about just very recently where I had to come off the campaign trail, uh, and I went to go speak at the vigil of a 69-year-old grandmother who was a member of my church in East Baltimore, who was working as a custodian in that church, and she was killed in the church bathroom. And I got off the trail to go speak at her vigil. So this issue is real, it is, uh, it's personal, and part of the biggest challenge we have of it, it's not even a piercing pain anymore for many people in Baltimore and around the state. It's more of a chronic pain. Like people are so used to it. And there's a problem with the fact that we've now gone on eight straight years of 300 plus homicides without a response, a concentrated statewide response, which is what our administration is going to bring. And that will include things like being able to have intelligence sharing between the local jurisdictions and the state and, and state police and state authorities, where we have information and we have data that's coming in about how the crimes are happening, when they are happening. But if you don't have data sharing mechanisms in place, you are never gonna be able to translate, translate that into safer streets. It means we have to fix our, a broken parole and probation system. 
where a third of all violent crimes that are taking place right now are being done by people who are in violation of parole and probation. So, i.e., we know who they are. We know who the trigger pullers are. And they continue to get back into our neighborhoods and our communities and wreak havoc. We've got to fix a broken parole and probation system where right now in the state of Maryland, we have over 150 vacancies in parole and probation. If people are not in the seats, they can't do the job. It means we've got to invest in our violence interruption programs that are on the streets doing the work. You know, myself and my running mate, uh, Delegate Aruna Miller, we believe deeply in the idea that people who are closest to the challenge are the ones closest to the solutions. They're just hardly ever at the table. And so if you have violence interruption groups, uh, groups uh, like We Are Us, which are on the ground and actually making sure that we're addressing the fact that much of the violence that we're seeing in Baltimore and around the state is retaliatory violence, right? You get me, now my person's gonna get three of your people. You have groups on the ground that are actually combating that work, but they oftentimes are either underfunded or completely unfunded. These are things that the state can take unique leadership roles on to be able to address the violence. Because if we, because the number one priority of any chief executive is making sure your people are safe. It is something I take very, very seriously. And it's something that our administration is gonna lean in on. Um, this is a great segue into a question from um, a fellow Mar Marylander, someone who may have voted for you, maybe not. Um, Aditha Smith from Maryland, she asks this question, is tighter gun control policy among your priorities? Yes, uh, you know, you, you have to think about the fact that we have, and first, thank you so much for that question. Uh, but you have to think about the fact that we have these illegal guns that continue to flood into our neighborhoods and into our communities, essentially unabated. Uh, I, I'm really thankful for the fact that our legislator, our legislature last year uh, passed a, a ban on ghost guns. And basically what ghost guns are, ghost guns are guns you can, you can make out of, out of 3D printers. Uh, and they are untraceable, they're untracked, and they are committing significant damage and impact on our, in our communities and our society. And so the legislature, uh, without the support of the governor, but the legislature passed a bill last year banning ghost guns. That is something that in our administration we will support and we will make sure that we are working with our federal partners to be able to not just get ghost guns, out of our streets and neighborhoods, but also this flood of illegal guns that are coming in from other states and ending up in our communities and in our homes. That is something I think has got to be a priority uh, as we're talking about what does it mean to make people feel safe? It means getting these illegal guns out of our neighborhoods. We're willing to negotiate now that the midterm elections. All right, let's switch gears and talk about something I know nothing about, really, sports. No, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. But this has to do with, with the Washington Commanders. Um, they play their home games yeah. in Maryland, but um, it seems as though they're shopping for a new home in, in the area. How important is it to you to keep the Commanders playing in Maryland? You know, this is this is this is a hard one, Jonathan, because, you know, I, I come from a family of a lot of Commanders fans. And uh, and and have and have been supporting Washington football since the days of you know Joe Theismann and Doug Williams and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, I'm not sure if this is going to make me the most popular person at Thanksgiving, uh, but I believe that the Commanders should stay. I want them to stay, but we I will not allow us to mortgage our future for a football team if it does not mean we're doing if we're not going to be doing community investment around it as well. If we're not gonna make sure that the entire community is uplifted, if we're not gonna make sure that there's gonna be economic growth 
uh, with small businesses and our MBEs and our WBEs, if we're not going to focus on making sure that that can become an economic attraction to the entire region, then, then keeping a football team is not worth mortgaging your future. And so I want them to stay. I would love to be able to, you know, to continue to go down to, to gorgeous Prince George's County and keep on rooting for the commanders. But there needs to be an understanding about how the entire neighborhood and how the entire community can benefit from having them there in a way that, frankly, that conversation has not taken place historically. So it sounds to me like you and outgoing Governor Larry Hogan, Republican, are kind of on the same page here because, from what I understand, he's grown frustrated dealing with the commanders. And he said that they've been trying to play Virginia and D.C. and Maryland uh, all against each other and that he doesn't want uh, taxpayers, Maryland taxpayers, to foot the bill for a new stadium. Is that kind of what you're, you're saying? Or if y'all want a new stadium, here's, here's what's, on, what's on my list of things you need to, you need to provide if Maryland taxpayers are going to give you money for a stadium. Yeah, I mean, where, where I am is I want the commanders to stay. I, I, I want the commanders to be here in Maryland. But what we're not going to do is to allow taxpayer dollars to essentially continue to underwrite the enterprise. But taxpayers are not getting the return on that investment besides being able to watch a game on Sundays. That's not going to be enough. And so I do want to, and I'm excited to, do, to enter, into, enter into this conversation and enter into this negotiation, because I want the commanders to, to be here. And I think they play a very important role uh, in, in, the, in the state of Maryland in our long-term uh, long recruitment, success, health, et cetera. But they have to be part of a larger conversation about economic growth. And that goes well past just how was the team performing on Sundays? If that's where the conversation ends, then yes, I, I think that there are, there are probably other locations that they can look to go to. Hmm. Well, let's have a larger conversation and talk about the political mood of the country. What did, what did the November elections say about the political mood uh, of the country? I mean, you had your, your night was spectacular compared to some other folks' night, but Democrats didn't have as bad a night as was once feared. Yeah, you know, I, I think one thing if you look at, even if you separate, uh, if you separate political party and you just look at what the individual campaigns were talking about, I think it was a very good night for democracy. I think it was a very good night for people who actually talked about issues that matter to people. Uh, and I think that was the trend that we continue to see throughout this entire midterm, midterm election. Uh, where, where we had people who across the, across the country were really saying, you know, that we're tired of being at each other's throats on things like who won the 2020 election. I think people are tired and I think they're exhausted. And I think that people in the state of Maryland, if you look at the data from the exit polls that come out of the state of Maryland, we saw very clearly uh, the message that I got and the reason that we won in such a resounding fashion is we've been very clear that, uh, you know, I, I want us to be a state that, that cares more about, is it a good idea, than where's the idea come from, right? I want us to be a state that's going to say, we're going to drive and think about the future and not continue to deliberate the past. And I think for all those candidates who try to make their platform, as we saw in the state of Maryland, for those candidates who try to make their platform on, on, on issues like whether or not January 6th was justified, 
Uh, I think you saw a core rejection of that around around the country, where where you know we're we're we were not going to spend our time, uh, you know, debating whether or not January sixth uh, was uh, was an insurrection. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I and I'm and I'm very very clear when I talk about patriotism, and I take that word very personally and very seriously. And I love and I have defended this country and I would do it over and over and over again. But the idea of, of, of challenging democracy and debating democracy uh, was not something that we were gonna do when we're talking about the future for the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw both in the state of Maryland around the country that that's where voters were. Well, let me get you on this. Your thoughts on Donald Trump's dinner with Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, and a known white supremacist, Nick Fuentes, at Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I the the fact the fact that 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 President Trump had dinner with uh with a uh, someone who has a history of anti-Semitic comments and a history of of white nationalist beliefs, uh, and Nick Fuentes, you know, it's it says a lot. Uh, it's also not news. Uh, you know, this is this is something that, that I, I, I think that, that governor elect. <laughs> <I caught that. laughs> but go on, continue. <laughs> but but I mean, but this but this is this is something that I think is is more par for the course uh, that we've continued to see, uh, and I think it's something that's also just remarkably dangerous. Uh, that uh, that that when we're talking about the the views of where people are in the state of Maryland uh, and beyond. I, I think people realize and understand that that conversations and 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 beliefs about anti-Semitism uh, and white nationalism they have no place in our dialogue, and they will have no place in our dialogue. And, and I think that you know people continue to see that when we're talking about loving your country, uh, and what does it mean to love your country? Loving your country does not mean hating half of the people in it, right? Loving your country does not mean focusing on taking down the, democrat- the, 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 the democratic foundation that the country is built on. Loving your country does not mean honoring elections as long as it goes your way. That when we talk about loving our country, it means that understanding that our history, flaws and all, has still allowed us the opportunity to get to a better place. And so, I, I, and I think about it where, where you know, with, with my own family, where my own family, I come from a family of patriots, people who have people who have served in classrooms, people who have served in the military, people, you know, people who have served in the ministry, people who have loved this country, even when the country did not love them back. And they kept on fighting and they kept on loving this country. And so the idea that you can have dinners in, in Mar-a-Lago or in West Hollywood uh, amongst people who are talking about this country as, as if as if our 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 our, our democracy uh, is not fragile is amazingly dangerous. And so I think it's 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 perfectly appropriate that we now are watching not just Democrats but Republicans who are calling this out. And I also think the thing that we're going to continue to do is focusing on showing people, Democrats, Independents, and Republicans, to show them here is what good governance looks like. Here is what democracy looks like. And why it can benefit all people as long as we actually choose to work together and not pick and choose who are our, who are our neighbors and then who are our fellow citizens not. 
Uh, we're going to go over time, but I can't have you here and not just ask you this one last question, especially after your beautiful words about loving our country and, and patriots in your family. And one of those patriots, uh, we've talked about this before, your grandfather, whose family fled the Klan in the States back to Jamaica, but your grand when he was a child, your grandfather came back when he was older. And paraphrasing here, he came back because he said, America would be incomplete without me. And so having yes. shared that, you're going to become Maryland's 63rd governor. And as we've said many times, you are the first African-American elected governor of the state of Maryland, only the third in United States history. Real quickly, talk about the significance of that to you personally. Yeah, it um, it shows me that that progress is is possible, um, but it's not inevitable. And this this larger experiment of democracy is, is something that we all have to continue working on and working through. And you know, I I, I remember saying during election night, while I'm proud of the fact that I am the first, uh, I also know that I wasn't the first to try. That the reason that I can see higher is because I understand that there are significant shoulders that I stand on to include, you know, to include my family members and people like my grandfather who ended up becoming uh, the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, a person who, uh, who when he passed away at 87 years old, uh, I was in Afghanistan when he when he uh, when he died and um, and uh, this is a man who had a deep Jamaican accent his entire life and was maybe the most patriotic American that I've ever met he loved this country and he believed in her so deeply and uh, and I remember having conversations with him about what it meant to be the first uh, the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church and he would say to me he said uh, while he understood that it was important and the history making component of it he would say, but that's not the assignment. And that wasn't the assignment. And, uh, and the thing that I do think about now in this moment is I'm honored and I'm humbled by the fact that I am the, the, the first black governor in the history of this state, only the third in this country. Uh, I'm honored that the people of this state of Maryland gave me that, gave me that, uh, uh, gave me that, that, that title and that privilege. But I also know that's not the assignment. And I also know that's not why they voted for me. They didn't vote for me because they wanted me to make history. They voted for me because they wanted me to address the issues that were impacting their lives. They voted for me because they wanted me to address the fact that we still have, I was talking with a parent who told me that her child is currently reading at an eighth grade reading level. And last year he was reading at an eighth grade reading level and she's not sure what to do. I'm, I'm running because we're addressing the fact that we have a, uh, I was speaking with a, uh, with a, with a shop owner who is now working on their third store that they're opening, uh, that they are proudly in Montgomery County. But this third store that they're opening is in Virginia because he says that he can no longer grow in the state of Maryland. Or the person who I know, who I, who I met two weeks before election day in Baltimore, who was working two different jobs and still living below the poverty line. I'm, I didn't win because they wanted me to make history. I won because they wanted me to make the challenges that they're facing in their lives history. And so in the words of my grandfather, that's the assignment. And that's the assignment that I'm taking seriously.
Governor-elect Wes Moore, soon to be the 63rd governor of Maryland. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live, and congratulations. It's so good to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.